If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read and study from verse 1 to 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Lord God, we're thankful for your word, and may you um, fill our hearts and our minds with truth uh, this day as we uh, look um, to, to honor you with our lives through the preaching and teaching of your word. May it move us, may it cause us to uh, think eternally about what uh, about life and to take life seriously, but at the same time to enjoy this life that you've given us. We thank you for this time. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Around 1602, Galileo was staring up and he saw the swinging lamp at a, inside a cathedral and it's what inspired him to come up with the idea of a pendulum. He thought that he can use this regular motion of gravity to, to, to keep track of time. Uh, and it was the best way uh, to keep track of time until the pendulum clock was invented in 1658. If you don't know what a pendulum is, a pendulum is this sphere that's suspended into the, uh, into the ceiling, and it usually goes from one side to the left. And people would use this at, at, uh, in, in history as a way to keep track of time. The pendulum clock became the world's standard for timekeeping 
and it was only succeeded by the quartz clock in 1903. Then, uh, after World War II, the atomic clock replaced the quartz clock. We know how important time is. Time is the most important resource. It is the only thing that young people are unaware of and something that older people are very mindful of. It is the thing that people want more but can never obtain more. Money can't buy you more time. Psalm chapter 90, as I read earlier, told us to teach us to number our days. In the book of Ephesians, it tells us to redeem the days for the redeem the time for the days are evil, and we must be mindful of the time that is given to us. But what will help us keep track of our time is not a watch or any device, but what will make us keep track of our time is understanding that every second that we have is given to us by the Lord, and we're called to give an account of it. We're called to be a steward of the time that He has given us. Solomon here, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, he has experienced a lot in life. He, um, he went on this quest to find meaning and pleasure and satisfaction uh, in everything there is that the world has to offer. He tried to find it in philosophy, tried to find it in pleasure, he tried to find it in wisdom, he tried to find it in work, and in the end, he found out that without God, he couldn't find any happiness or meaning. If God is not factored into your life, in every facet of your life, then you will find that your life is frustrating and it's, it's, it's unfulfilling because God has designed it in our lives to be worshipers of Him. And if we try to live life without Him, our life will be meaningless. Solomon goes on this little metaphysical uh, gets a little metaphysical here in chapter 3 in this first part because he speaks about God in, in terms in relative, in relative to time and that uh, God isn't bounded by time. And this is, I think, the most mind-trippy part of Ecclesiastes. And by that I mean it reveals something about, the, about our God that is so great and so grand that it makes us fear him. The only response, the only proper response when you understand this text is to fear the Lord. This section, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, is a section about time and is both timely and timeless. And what we need in order to live life with meaning is not to look at the seasons of life and, and, and is not to find meaning in, the, in, in every aspect of our life, but rather we need to look and worship the one that, has, that, that life is pointing to, the one that, is, is, that can truly give us meaning despite our life seemingly completely out of control, is the only one that's in control, that is our God. <clears throat> we must never fear the times that we live in, but rather we must fear the God who controls the times that we live in. It is foolish for us to assume that there is somehow something that we can do to guarantee a certain outcome in life, because the scripture is clear that although we may be able to discern the times we are never able to control time. The way the seasons of life work is a constant humbling reminder that we cannot be in control. The shifting of the times is a continual reminder that you and I have no control. So how are we to understand the times so that we can fear the Lord? 
But we first need to understand that everything in life is a cycle that's controlled by God, and everything in the seasons is, is controlled by God. God is in control of the macro things in life, and God is control over the details in life. So the first of our outline is in the bulletin if you have it. Uh, is the first point is the different seasons of life. How do we fear the Lord? We must understand that their life has just different seasons. And we see this in verse 1 to 8. Verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. This verse begins by stating that there is a point in time or a point of season for everything that goes on in life. There is a time and a season is appointed time for everything. That means that nothing is by chance, nothing is random, and nothing is haphazard or done haphazardly. It is all appointed by someone. Now, Solomon doesn't reveal who this controller is until verse 11, but we know just by the context of this book <coughs> excuse me, and the rest of the Bible that God is the one that's in control. But what is interesting is what's actually missing. Verse 1 tells us that it is appointed and that it makes no reference to mankind doing the appointing. Mankind has, doesn't get a vote to say what happens next. Humanity doesn't get to say uh, uh, what happens. Mankind doesn't have any choice in the matter. All of life is under the bondage of time, which is under the control of God, which means in reality, everything is under the control of God. You and I are in this are stuck in this time cycle. And we are in this time, in, the, in this day and age, because God has appointed it. All of our seasons of life, everything that we go through, that we're going through now, are under the hands of God. And we're just living in the midst of it. This shows how finite we are. Man is in the confines of time, which is under the control of God. We are the creature under the limitations of time, while the infinite creator controls everything within time. This portion is the most famous section of this book. In the original language, it doesn't really rhyme, but even as I said it, there's a rhythm to it. It goes from one way to another. It goes tick-tock, tick-tock. It swings from one end of the pendulum to the other side. Verse 2 to 8 speaks of, of every aspect of life. It intends to cover every moment of a person's existence here on earth. There are no exceptions. Every facet of life is touched upon. God's fingerprint is in every event of our lives. Solomon uses everything to the extremes to speak of the totality of life. Now, so before I begin, I, I understand that when you read some of these things on the list, it seems very grim. And this isn't to say that the scriptures are in favor of one or the other. What the Bible is just saying is just pointing out the reality of living in this world. It's attempting to be neutral in its description of the world. Everything that happens under the sun is listed here. Look at verse 2. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. This section begins as mirrorism. Mirrorism is a figure of speech to talk about how these two extremes and, this, and everything in between is, is just kind of describe everything, the totality of things. So when you hear that God is Alpha and Omega, it means that he is, is he's in the beginning of time, or he, he's, there's no beginning or end. He's in every aspect of time. And in, this, in these eight verses here, there's 14 sets in these seven verses here. 
and uh, verse 2 speaks of life, specifically human and plant life. What's similar to both is that neither plants nor humans uh, have control over their existence or their demise. A person is born into this world without a choice, and likewise, a seed is planted into the ground by the choice of the sower. Death happens to a person without any notice, and a plant gets plucked out to be eaten whenever the owner decides to do so. Now, I'm not saying that plants have thought life and emotions or anything like that. I'm just saying that the similarity between plant life and human life is that they just come and they go. The Bible is clear that God is in control of both life and death. Psalm 139 verse 13 tells us that we were all knit in the womb of God. Job 14.5 tells us that our days are numbered by God. There is no escaping that God is a decipherer or the decider of both beginning and end of life for every living creature and thing on earth. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up. There's a slight twist in this comparison here, whereas the last one goes from the good to the bad. This one goes from the bad to the good. It speaks of killing and tearing down and then a time of healing and then building up, respectively. Now, killing and healing aren't exactly opposites. If we were to compare uh, do a complete opposite, it would be killing and living. But the point here is that killing is an act of ending life, where healing is a part of preserving life. Yet nothing is permanent. There's a time for one, and there's a time for the other. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. This verse now moves to the realm of emotions. There are times when a person is crying, then laughing uh, and mourning, uh, to dancing. They just go from one to the other. This word mourning is <clears throat> this idea of lamenting. It's usually used to describe someone when there's a death. First uh, Samuel 25, when, when Samuel died, the entire nation cried and they mourned for him. In a broad sense, this word is used to describe some sort of uh, bewailing because of unforeseen circumstances. The point is that any type of life situation that is undesirable or painful that leads to someone to weep loudly. And this, this is contrasted with a time to dance. This is the spring to leap for joy. And again, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, the same word where David was dancing in front of, uh, dancing in his room because of the ark returning back to Israel. The idea here in this verse is that, that we will go through one and the other. There will be times where we'll be moved to outward expression of some inward emotion. We'll go through one and the other, whether positive or negative, is a public display of either great sorrow or great happiness. Verse 5, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Casting away stones and gathering stones refers to, to some uh, entrepreneurship and working. Casting stones would, be, uh, would make a field unworkable or to destroy another person's field. We see this in Second Kings chapter 3. Uh, um, usually people would cast stones on a field during times of war. Stones would be moved away then uh, when the land is open to farm. Uh, to gather stones also means to grab the stones to set up borders and boundaries when you're making these farmlands. This would mean that this, there, there's a season where you acquire wealth and there's a, a time where you stop making money. And the second part here, a time for embracing and time to shun embracing, this isn't talking about social distancing 
Uh, rather, it talks about how when people embrace or refrain from embracing in, in some sort of kind greeting in terms of business terms. You know, in our culture, we, or at least four months ago, we would shake hands when we, make business, when we do business with people. Now we'll probably do like, like, a, like a little elbow bump. That's the idea here, that there are, there's a time where people uh, would work, and there's a season when people will cease from working. They, uh, they, will t- they will end their business endeavors. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up as loss, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Whereas the last verse speaks of work, this verse speaks of possession. There's time to gather possessions and there are moments in which stuff that we have are just lost. Actually, before I recorded this message, I had my headphones and I, got, I remember getting into the car with it. And then when I left the car, somehow it's gone. It like raptured away. And I remember, look, and I was looking in this building, trying to find this little thing. And I just re- reminded of this verse here, that, well, there's a time to have things, and then the time things would just go away. And that's just part of life. Uh, there are times when we gather things, and there are times when we throw things away. Uh, some things in life we acquire, there are times in life where we acquire, and then there are things we just lost unbeknownst to us. And while some things you have, you just give away. Uh, one commentary describes this as uh, a biblical case for a garage sale, that you just you would buy things and then you would just give it away someday or you would sell it. We sometimes would, um, would, would purge the stuff that we once wanted so desperately to acquire. And the point being here is that your possessions in this life will be there for a season and they'll be gone for the next. There are moments in our life where we want to go on these massive shopping sprees and then there will be times where we will sell those same things on eBay. Again, if, this is, if you're a spouse, you can use this verse against your spouse to go on a shopping spree. At the same time, your spouse can counter and say, we can sell everything. I'll let it, leave it up to you for your own discretion. This verse here is just talking about the things that we have in life, that we will get it, we'll have things one day, and the next moment they're gone. Verse 7, a time to tear down and time to sew together. Time to be silent and time to speak. The point of this section of this verse is speaking of tearing and sewing a garment. And usually this is associated with, again, with weeping and and, and mourning. Uh, back then in Jewish culture, whenever someone cries, they would usually tear their clothes as a sign of, of great distress. And um, uh, what it, when it was over, they would usually sew it back together. And the Pharisees were really good at this. They made their clothes uh, almost like pre-cuts so that when they tear it and when they want to fix it back together, it would be a lot easier. Um, you know, even back then, a Jewish time, there were professional mourners out there that would fake cry and mourn and, and they'll tear their clothes and they'll just sew it back together. Um, Times of sorrow usually, when when time of sorrow ends, they they'll go and then they'll they'll put their clothes back. And when it's time of sorrow, they'll cry and speak publicly. And when it's over, they'll keep silence. Solomon's saying that there will be a time where you will cry as uh, cry out while tearing your clothes, and then later you will silently recover as you sew back your clothes. There is a time for both. First, say a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. This last portion of this poem means to describe how God is sovereign over the nations. Every nation has a time where there is love and hate and as well as there's peace and war. Whether nations rise up against themselves or nations rise up against other nations, there will be a time for war. And it's a grim reality of living in a fallen world that people and nations will rise up against one another. There are moments where it seems like there is this constant bloodshed and war, and then there are times where it seems like there's just peace and love. 
and there will be a time for both, and there will be a time where it ends. You can't find meaning or purpose in the seasons of your life because the times are always changing. It is not stable. You can't make life about certain moments of happiness because those times will pass. It will just make you want uh, one extreme and try to resist the other. Some try to find purpose in having a good time, not realizing the bad times will come and they will lose their purpose and meaning in life. Our world wants to desperately stay in one side of the, of the seasons while fighting to never reach the other end. And it's not possible. It is a vain endeavor. Living in a broken, sin-cursed Genesis 3 world means that you and I are going to go through good times and bad times. Life goes from one end to another. It swings from one end of the pendulum and it swings to the other. This is how life is under the sun. And this is how we need to live. We can't do anything about it but to endure it. Life happens and it happens according to God. Life will have moments of smooth sailings and choppy waters. Life will be hard and pleasant and then hard again and then pleasant again. Now, I do want to say, especially during this time of COVID-19 and even this year, it will seem like 2020 is just one big, terrible event. Life is just seems so hard every day, every week, every month. There's some, something new and dreary that we, that we hear. If, for example, if, let's say, we're thinking about a pendulum here, the left meaning is good and the right is bad, it seems like we're stuck. 2020, it seems like we're stuck on this one side. But I do want to remind us that we actually don't know if we really are on the one side. Because we could still be swinging into something bad, or it could be the end, or we could actually be in the good and we're waiting just, uh, for some crazy catastrophe to happen to, that makes us think that this moment of COVID-19 is nothing compared to what is to come. And we don't know. We don't know which end of the, uh, of the pendulum we're at. But we can rest assured to know that one day it will swing the other way. It will swing back to time where it's good again. We don't know where we are, and God may be uh, causing us the storm, but he's also the raft onto which keeps us afloat. Rather, he's the raft that actually holds on to us so that we will not drown. In the end, for the Christian, everything will always turn out for the good. You have to remember that there was a pre-COVID world, and I assure you there will be a post-COVID world. There was a time when it wasn't so bad, and there was a time that is really bad, and there will be a time again where it's good again. And there will be a time again where it's bad again. We're just now in the middle of, 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 of something really bad right now. But for us as Christians, it's doubly true for us because we know that there is going to be a good season again in this life, but there will be a perfect season in the next life. The, the cycle will end for us. For the Christian, we can only break free from this cycle uh, when we enter into eternity, when there is absolute peace in heaven. <clears throat> heaven is <clears throat> infinitely greater than any good season that we have in this life. And we know that we, when we get into heaven, we'll be infinitely separated from all the bad things in this life. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged and have eternal perspective on life. Fix your eyes and, and fix your gaze on the hope of heaven, knowing that this cycle will end for all of us. 
place your gaze on the infinite. We're currently separated from one another, but we will be together again. We are currently in, in unstable times, but things will level out. We are currently in difficult times, but things will get better. Please don't lose heart. Be encouraged to know that the same God whose one hand is changing the times is also on the other hand holding tightly to you and I. He will never let us go. Don't fear the bad times or worship the good times. Rather, fear the Lord and worship God who controls all of time. Fear him who decides every season of our life. This season here is temporal. The vanity of each season must make us long for the eternal. The imperfect times make us long for the perfect time that we will have with our God. But first, we must learn to fear the Lord. And how do we learn to fear the Lord during this time? Just know that the seasons and the cycles of life change. And second, God's power will show us how he is the definite controller of life, that he's in control of every little detail, and that should make us fear him. Our second point, the definite controller of life. Verse 9 to 15. God, through Solomon, shows us a small glimpse about who God is, which in turn shows us how small we are. Verse 9. What profit, <coughs> excuse me, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? This is a rhetorical question. What is the point in all that you do in this life if, if it just ends? When a when new season comes, it's over. This is just passing, uh, this is just passing uh, judgment on human endeavors and just living in life. Everything that we do in life will just come and go. All of us are locked into a world that is bound by changing times. We generally do the same things over and over again, just in different seasons of our life. We sleep, we get up, we eat, we work, we sleep, we eat, and we just repeat. Going, it's doing the same things over and over again, over and over again in, in this cycle. And, and even when the seasons change, it doesn't really change because then eventually the seasons will repeat itself. No matter how, how hard you work in this life, you cannot change the time that God has already predestined. Verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men which, with which to occupy themselves. Psalm begins to do some musing. He's just thinking. He's reflecting on his life. And he came to this conclusion that God is in control of everything. And even his job that he's doing is because of God. Solomon understands that the reason why he's a king is because, Solomon, is because God made him a king. And he realizes that every occupation in the world, everyone that does stuff or doesn't do things, is because God allowed them to do it. God created the earth, God created the way the world operates, and then jobs for its creature to work on the earth. It's interesting he uses the word occupy. In our day, we often use this word as like, as a cure for boredom, right? We like, we say, oh, you occupy, uh, this child has nothing to do, let's give him something to occupy himself with. This is actually what Solomon means. This is what he's trying to get at, that humanity are made to work and God gives them something to do. There is a humbling reality that all the stuff that we have, all the stuff that we're doing, we're only doing it because God has given us the ability to do so. Our ability to fulfill things is completely dependent on God's gifting to his creatures. He gives some certain abilities while others he doesn't. He gives certain 
amount of intellect while others he doesn't. He gives certain resources to some while others he doesn't. Whether it's an ability, an opportunity, God is in control of all of it. You go about your business because God has given you the task to do so, and the result of the task is also completely in God's control. We are all under the control and mercies, depending how you look at it, or even the grace of God. Everything in our life is controlled by the Lord. Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in, in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God has made everything according to his purpose. Everything in life has a reason. And the whole, this whole chapter, this whole portion here can be summed up in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where God has uh, orchestrated all things for the good of people, for those who love him. And it's for his glory. Since God is control, he knows how to work all things for our good and for his glory. Solomon said that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And what is fascinating about that line is that God has built in a, some sort of basic level understanding that this life isn't all that there is. It is written into our DNA. It is our default setting. It is built into us with this one understanding that there is eternity. We know something that is beyond us. You know, this is the way God designed Adam and Eve. God's intentional design for them wasn't that they would die, but because of sin, that's what caused and brought death into the world. We know instinctively of eternity, but sin makes humanity deny it and focus on the, on the here and now. It could only focus on the, on, on the temporal. Humanity has to actively work towards denying the reality that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. God has built it in us to wonder what is the meaning of the things we do in life by making us think of eternity. It's supposed to make us seek him. It's supposed to make us look for the eternal. God made us creatures that exist forever after we're created. We have a beginning, yet we don't have an end. And God has neither beginning nor end. This is an interesting, small part of a communicable attribute of God. A communal attribute means like something that God has that we can also share. We don't share in terms of the beginning sense because we have a beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. But we understand that we actually will not ever cease to exist. We will always exist after we were born. What a small glimpse in understanding how great our God is, is by looking at eternity. And that, is that, that eternity that's hardwired into our body, into our mind, this is what makes us feel small because we realize that there is eternity out there. And a side note, this is actually a philosophical argument on the existence of God. Uh, since God places knowledge of eternity into us, he shows it um, just a little, about, a little bit about who he is. The concept of eternity that is inside all of us is evident that someone external has placed it into our hearts, into our minds, into our soul. Every religion speaks of eternity. Even the ones that are distorted views of Christianity, they speak of eternity. Every single, even Eastern religions, uh, with Buddhism and Hinduism, when they talk about the cycle going over and over again, they speak of eternity. Every creature on earth knows that eternity exists because God has hardwired it into our minds. Solomon tried to control every aspect of life. He thought because of his wisdom and research, he can somehow have complete control over every aspect of his life. Solomon attempted to escape this control from God, but God would not allow him. 
you have to remember that this is the end. This this book is written at the end of Solomon's life. He realizes his life is reaching the end, which means he's go, he's going to enter into eternity soon. God's implantation with the desire and knowledge of eternity makes us long for eternity. This enduring, this this ending phrase here in eleven, verse eleven, the bottom it says, "Yes, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end." It's to say that the man has no idea what's what's going on. They can you can mass all the knowledge and wisdom and all the understanding in the world, but you will ultimately have no idea what really is going on. And I think even this time that we live in is an evidence of that. No one really understands what's happening. It's a really humbling reminder that we are finite. We're always dependent on news sources and, and everything, but we know that those people don't even understand what they don't understand. It's to show us that we need to humbly acknowledge that we can't live life on our own, that we need God. God designed us with the ability God designed it without the ability to know everything. We are made to want to learn, but we will never learn everything. And that is going to be a thorn for even the smartest person, that they can't know everything. The desire and want to learn everything is always going to be crippled because of our, because of our sin and because also because God is not going to let us learn everything. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. This part begins this, this kind of interesting conclusion that he makes. He says, I know. He is his personal experiential knowledge, um, which is fascinating because Solomon is saying that if you believe that God is in control over everything and that, that there's eternity and all of this, then really all you have to do is enjoy the profession that he gives you. Enjoy the work that you have. The conclusion is that you just enjoy life. If you can't change anything, if you, you can't break this bound of the cycle until you turn, then enjoy this life as best as you can. You have eternity, and your life is just passing like a vapor, and you can't do anything about it, so enjoy this life. Verse 13, Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. Solomon points out that no one can take even the small... <coughs> Solomon points out that no one should take the small and temporal things for granted even though they're small little pleasures, and it's one humbly acknowledged that life is not in our control. So enjoy the life that you have. If everything in life, the courses of the, of the stars and, and uh, the passing of the season are all designed and controlled by God, then the only response is to enjoy it. Fear the Lord and enjoy this life. Enjoy all that there is, because it's going to end soon anyways. Life is short. It's but a vapor. So enjoy all that you can. You can't change it, so enjoy. You know the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. Okay, yeah. When it comes to God, you cannot beat God. So you might as well just join join him. Enjoy life. Enjoy the life he's given you. If you can't beat the sovereign and power of God, you might as well join God and enjoy the life that he has given to you and enjoy the work that he's given you. Part of, mean, part of the way that we find meaning in life is actually to enjoy this life that God has given us. We should enjoy it because our work is a gift from God. And I know in our culture that seems so weird. Like, how would you enjoy your work? Uh, uh, fun is what you want to uh, have. And yeah, like you should have a, a right balance. Ecclesiastes isn't saying that you should not have any pleasure or you should be a workaholic. You should enjoy what you do and stop working and enjoy the labors of your work. Have fun in life. Don't take life so seriously because life, living in the fallen world, is going to be hard. So enjoy it. Enjoy life, but fear the Lord. 
Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Solomon reached another conclusion from his meditation of life. Solomon uh, comments that whatever God has planned, mankind cannot change. And this can be frustrating because we like to be in control of our destinies, but in reality, no, you can't. You're not in control. And, we, and all the things that we want cannot thwart the, the plan of God, and we can't make God reconsider anything. There's also a contrast here between how man cannot do anything with lasting significance and God whose plans are always going to happen. No matter how much we plan, it may not go the way we, we will, but for God, it will absolutely happen. Without a shadow of a doubt, whatever God has in store, it will come to pass. And there's something really eerie about the very last phrase here in verse 14. He, did, he does all this for God so worked that men should fear him. So does this mean that God will use every circumstance to demonstrate his power so that you and I can fear him? And the answer is yes. God is going to show you how powerful he is so that you can worship him. Remember, this is what happened in the Gospels. When Jesus was on the boat and there was a storm that was going on, and the disciples are like, hey, don't, Jesus, don't you, do you want us to die? And Jesus rebukes the water, and it, and it stops. It calms. And the people were more afraid of Jesus in the boat than they were of the waters. See, every time when we get a little glimpse, a better picture, a perspective of who God is and how great he is, it will strike fear in our hearts. Our world hates thinking about having to fear or submit to anyone. But fear is actually good if the object of our fear is good, and God is good. When we fear the Lord, when we have a, a reverential fear, a loving fear for him, we realize that, hey, he's a good God. Everything that he does is actually for our good. And when we see how grand and majestic he is, we realize that nothing compares to him. That's why we fear him. You know, like sometimes, whenever, as a parent, you understand when you, when you discipline your kids, you have this love-fear relationship. They they love you for all that you do for them, how you play with them, you tickle them, you feed them and provide for them. They love you for that. But they also fear you because in their little eyes, how intimidating you are. You know, you can discipline them when they're, when they're doing something wrong. That's what the love that we, that's like the type of relationship that we have with the Lord. Our God, yeah, we love him and there's no fear and condemnation, but we do need to have a fear for him because he knows everything. He's in control of everything. He is everywhere. God is showing his power over all time so that those that are in time can begin to worship the God of time for all time. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord brings us to a worshipful state in the one true God. And this is what Solomon means here. When you realize how small you are in light of how great and vast God is, it should terrify you because God is the only God that's in control of everything. There is nothing that you can do but to fear the Lord. Verse 15. That which, has been, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. This verse means that there's a circular nature of time. The history unfolds the way that God wants it, and God works through his plans. How do we know that God is sovereign? Because it happens. 
How do we know things happen? Because God is sovereign. That's what it's trying to get here. Whatever God set in motion will come to pass. All that has happened was part of God's plan. All that is happening now is part of God's plan. And all that will happen is part of God's plan. There will be a time where we will be able to, we'll never be able to break the cycle of God's sovereignty, but we will be able to break the cycle of living in this going back and forth. The cycle and seasons of this monotonous life will only end when sin is removed. Sin will, will, once sin is removed, for us as Christians, we understand now we can fully enjoy God and, and it will always be in the good side. We'll always be able to enjoy life. But until then, God will leave us trapped in this time to humble us. We will be stuck in this time of one side to the other to, to show us how powerful he is. Why is Solomon writing all this? To make us learn to fear the Lord. No one else in all of existence can micromanage the way that the Lord does. Every single molecule, every single planet, every single part of reality is in the sovereign hand of God. Then this is the task that is seemingly great and impossible for us to handle, but is nothing to the Lord. And that's precisely the point. The seemingly tireless and meaningless task that we have in our life is contrasted with the effortlessness of our God when he controls everything in the universe. It is actually a good thing for us to know that God is in control of everything, that he's in control of every moment that we live in. It's actually very scary to think that we're somehow in control of our lives because man cannot be trusted. What we think of one day can be changed in the another. I mean, this is what this whole um, cancel culture is about, right? It's like people are accusing people, other people, what they thought in the past, and they re- renounce these things, oh, I don't believe this anymore. Not that way with the Lord. You can't cancel God. God says, this is what it's going to be, and it will come to pass whether you like it or not. It is only in the believers that will understand that, and, and because they understand this, because they understand that God is so powerful and so mighty that we can enjoy life. We know that everything happens and everything come, everything go. God will provide for us and he will take those things away and it's okay, fine. Enjoy the moments that you have. Enjoy the family time that you have. Enjoy your singleness. Enjoy your marriage. Enjoy whatever you're in right now. Enjoy it. Enjoy the time that we have. But also remember to fear the Lord. All of us are tempted to spend our time speculating about what God is doing, what God might do. And Solomon is saying, just give up. Just don't even try. Rather, just fear the Lord and enjoy what you have at the moment. Faithfully serve the Lord, learn his word, and enjoy life as, as the best as you can. Fear, uh, fear the Lord. For the Christians, we know that the best is, has yet to come. This life is going to go from good to bad and good to bad and good to bad. We know the best has yet to come. God's plan will always be unclear to us. But God is absolutely clear that his plans will come to pass. The changing and passing of time must make us fear the Lord because God is in control over every detail of our life. Think deeply about these two truths and so that you can fear the Lord and enjoy Him. Enjoy Him, enjoy the life, enjoy all the things you have. Without God, the passing of time is frustrating because you will be stuck in this cycle doing the same things over and over and over again. Then it will be tiring and it will not end until you die. You need to understand that Happiness in every season of life can be found in worshiping the God who controls all the seasons of life. As I stated earlier, the cycle will only end the moment we enter into eternity. For the Christians, we know that it will end 
when, when, when we are with the Lord. And that's paradise. That's paradise for all eternity. An unending paradise, free from the bondage and the effects of sin. But for the non-believer, or the ones who have not given their life to the Lord, your cycle will end as well, but your eternity will be spent enduring the unending wrath of God for all of eternity, for all of the sins that you committed in this short life. The cost is far greater than you can ever imagine. You're basically uh, being punished for all these sinful temporal pleasures that you have in this life for all of eternity. You're being, you're going to, that's the, the cost. Are you willing to give up these temporal pleasures, these temporal sins in life so you could be with God for eternity? Or do you want to, uh, because of these temporal sins, endure the wrath of God for all of eternity? You may be able to seemingly rest in your sin without God now, but rest assured that there will be no rest for you in the next life. The Bible describes hell as a place of, of, of burning and gnashing of teeth and constant torment. You must fear the Lord now. All of, uh, all of your actions are before the Lord. He knows you. He sees everything that you've done in every season of your life. And you need to fear God and embrace Christ. You need to fear the one, the one true God who entered into time, who came into the world as a sinless child and lived that perfect life in the confines of time. Someone that has lived through different seasons. He has seen the, 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 the useless vanity of work, but yet he, his one work that has saved us and has still lasting effects is what he did on the cross for you and I. He went to the cross and died so that death can be done away with. He came into the world and rescued us so that we can no longer be separated from him. And he rose again three days later to give us that ending of the cycle so we could live eternity in paradise with him. But if you reject God today, your cycle will end and you will be separated from God for all of eternity. And that's going to be a tireless pain that you would wish that Oh, this life is just so much better, even the bad times, because the future that you have is going to be infinitely worse, because that does not end. There is no cycle in hell. There is no rest for you. This is is why, while you still have the time left, I say to you, non-believer, today, fear the Lord. But for us believers, fear the Lord, enjoy life the best as you can and do it as an act of worship to him and trust that this season of life as hard as it is now it will it will eventually go away and i assure you when that time comes when we're able to meet together again it will be a joyful time and we'll look back at this time and see how good god is in allowing all of us to go through this season of life and we can rejoice knowing that this is just a foretaste of the paradise that we will have in heaven in the future let us pray Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word and this constant reminder of how little we are, but at the same time, how safe we are because of how big you are. And Lord, give us just a humble heart and knowing that um, we can't live life without you, that we can't find any joys without you, that you designed us to love and to delight in you. And Lord, May we constantly be reminded of the grace that you've shown us, that you've died on the cross for us, Lord, that we, apart from you, will just live life full of meaningless work, and then we die. And Lord, we're grateful that you've given us purpose, 
not just in, in, in hope. He was purpose to enjoy this life and, and know what we're supposed to do with the task you've given us. And then we also have a promise from you that we have eternity with you, separate from all pains and suffering. Lord, thank you for being such a good and sovereign God. We pray that your word can transform our lives so that we can be joyful, so that the world wonders why are we so happy during this time. And we tell them that we worship an eternal good God. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.